a son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. You may have your seats. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would calm my heart, calm my mind, Lord, that your spirit would fill me up. Lord, I come before you as Isaiah, like Isaiah, with unclean lips. But Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would use my lips, that you would use my tongue to deliver your word, and it would be an encouragement to the people, that they would see you as glorious. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. So like I said, I have the honor of delivering the word this morning, and we are entering into what is called the Advent season. The Advent season um, is going to be over the course of the next month. You will be hearing other preachers um, delivering sermons in regards to Advent. So what is Advent? What does Advent mean? Advent simply means arrival. And in our text today, this is the promise of the arrival of the light. In our text this morning, we are promised from Isaiah the arrival of the light. But before we get to the light and what that means, this arrival of the light, we must first realize that we see darkness. In the opening verse that we see here in Isaiah 22 that leads into Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, we see darkness. I'm going to read this one more time. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction. And they will be driven into thick darkness. So the first question we have to ask is why were the people in darkness? Why were the people in darkness? Well, in order to understand this, we need to understand the historical context. What was taking place here when Isaiah was saying these things, this prophecy from the Lord about the people being in darkness. So at this time, the people of Israel or the Hebrews, they were split into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom, which was also called Israel. And there was the southern kingdom that was called Judah. So this people of God was already split there was division amongst the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel. They were split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. 
And Isaiah was a prophet of God that was called primarily to prophesy to the kingdom in the south, the kingdom of Judah. God called him to go before the king of Judah and to prophesy to him. So we know that the book of Isaiah is a part of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. And so chapter seven and eight of Isaiah, something that we haven't read, but this is the context. Chapter seven and eight of Isaiah tell the story of Isaiah's dealing with King Ahaz. So this is the king of Judah, the king of the southern kingdom at the time, King Ahaz. At a time when the king of Syria and the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, were joining together to attack Jerusalem. Jerusalem was located. That's where the holy temple was. And Jerusalem was located in Judah, the southern kingdom. So the, the kingdom of the north, the king of the northern kingdom, Israel, and the king of Syria were joining together to attack, to plan to attack Jerusalem. So Isaiah was going to Ahaz, the king of Judah, to counsel him to not fear these two kings. Because the Lord was going to deliver Jerusalem. So Ahaz was told by Isaiah, don't fear these two kings that are planning to attack Jerusalem. The Lord will deliver Jerusalem. So Ahaz, all he had to do was trust the Lord. Trust what Isaiah was saying to him, that the Lord would deliver Jerusalem and the kingdom of the south. But Ahaz couldn't bring himself to trust God, couldn't bring himself to trust Yahweh. So he sent messengers to the king of Assyria, another kingdom that was in the north. He sent messengers to the king of Assyria swearing loyalty to Assyria. Now, this is the king that's supposed to be following God. Ahaz is the king of Judah. He's supposed to be submitted to the Lord and following God. But instead of trusting the words of Isaiah that come from the Lord, trusting that Ahaz would be delivered and Jerusalem would be delivered by the Lord, Ahaz wanted to take matters into his own hands something we very often do as part of our human nature. We want to take matters into our own hands instead of trust God. And this is what Ahaz did. Couldn't bring himself to trust God, so he sent messengers to the king of Assyria, swearing loyalty to Assyria and asking this pagan king, the king of Assyria, not a king that followed the Lord, asking this pagan king, to save Jerusalem. And one of the things that he did to encourage him further to try to get this king, this pagan king on his side, one of the things that he did was he took, Ahaz took silver and gold vessels from the temple in Jerusalem that were dedicated unto the Lord. He took those silver and gold vessels and sent them to the king of Assyria. One of the other things that he did was he also adapted the worship of the Assyrian gods rather than the Lord. So Ahaz has royally messed up. 
big time. He's putting his trust in a pagan king. He's taken the things that were sacred, the vessels of the Lord, these gold and silver vessels, and sent them as a peace offering to this king in order to encourage him to come help him fight against the other two kings that he felt were going to take over Jerusalem. And he also began to worship the Assyrian gods. So this is what led the people of Judah, God's people, into darkness. Their king. Their king pursuing pagan kings for his help. For his assistance in fighting this battle that was approaching with the kings of Israel and the king of Syria. So darkness overtook the people of Judah. And that's where we see in verse 822, it say that they will look toward the earth. The people of God will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction. And they will be driven into thick darkness. Darkness has been the condition not just of the people of Israel in this case, the people of Judah, but darkness has been the condition of man since the fall. The first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God. They didn't trust God at his word, just like Ahaz did not trust God was going to deliver his people. They didn't trust God at his word, Adam and Eve. They sinned against God. They trusted the word of the serpent, and they brought sin, death, and destruction into this world. And because of that, darkness has been the condition of man since the fall. I'm going to share a few verses with you. In Proverbs chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, it says this, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, shining brighter and brighter until midday. That's the path of the righteous. But the way of the wicked is like the darkest gloom. They don't know what makes them stumble. Another verse, Colossians chapter 1. Verses 12 and 13. Giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loved. I'll say that again. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loved. Ephesians 5, 8 and 9, we read this in the call to repentance. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So just like the people in Judah, just like the people of Israel, 
these scriptures remind us that we, even though we may be in Christ today, that we once walked in darkness. We once were blind to the glorious light. We once couldn't see the goodness and the glory of the Lord. We once were in darkness. One of the things I want us to see from the text in the Old Testament here, in verse 1, it says, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to the Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and light has dawned on those living in the land of the darkness. This is a prophecy given by Isaiah. A prophecy that was going against what Judah and what King Ahaz decided that they wanted to do. This prophecy was showing that the people that were walking in darkness, that these people were God's people. These people were not foreigners. These people were not just pagans. These were God's people who were walking in the darkness. It's a tragic thing for the people of God to walk in the darkness. And this prophecy, even though the people were walking in darkness, was full of grace, was full of the goodness and the mercy of God. See, God is merciful towards those who walk in darkness. God has grace for those who walk in darkness, walk in the darkness. But the grace of, of the advent, a prophecy of the arrival, a prophecy of the arrival of the light, because what dispels darkness? Nothing but light. Light is what dispels the darkness. And so this prophecy from Isaiah, in where verse 6, he says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. A prophecy of a child. A child that will be born. See, this is the prophecy of the Messiah. Showing the people that though they walk in darkness, that though they sin, that though they rebel, that though they worship idols, though they, they, they look to help from pagan gods, though they do all that, that God has mercy, God has grace, and God is going to send the light to expel and dispel the darkness. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. See, this is a prophecy from the Old Testament. And we here as New Testament believers, see, we're on the other side. We're living in 2021 AD. We're on the other side of this prophecy. We know who this light was. 
we know that this light is Christ. It's Jesus, the Messiah, the son who is given. The time that we are representing and, and, and celebrating coming up here in, on de in December is the birth of this son, the savior who came into the world, this light that entered into the world. We know that on this side. But for those who were in Isaiah's day, they were looking forward to it. We can look back, but they were looking forward. This promise had not come into fruition yet. So we have a different perspective than they had. They were hopeful. They were looking forward. They were trying to trust in the promise. We see the reality of what took place. We know on this side that Christ came, the conquering king. He came, this Messiah that they were looking for, that they were hoping for. He came. We see that. We know that on this side. But in their time, from their perspective, they were hoping for this Messiah to come. They were looking for him to come. They were having to trust in the promises of God. I want to say this about the Old Testament. Even the Old Testament itself needed the light. I'm going to share this verse or this quote, excuse me, with you. This is a quote by a Presbyterian minister and a seminary professor um, in the time of the late 1800s and the early 1900s. His name is B.B. Warfield. He said this about the Old Testament. The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. Let me say that again. The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. So I want you to think about a room that is decorated beautifully. Picture this in your head. Maybe it's a wedding reception, the day before the wedding, that it's decorated and it's made all nice and they've got all these beautiful decorations and flowers all adorning this room. Just think about that, right? But it's the day before the wedding. And after the people that set up all these decorations, after they're done, at the end of the night, the day before the wedding, they cut out the lights, okay? So this, this room has been decorated. It's filled with beauty but the lights are off. Think about it like that in regards to this. The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished, a room richly furnished, but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before. So when you turn on the lights, nothing new appears. It was already in the room. But now that the light has entered the room, you can see clearly. If you were standing in that room while it was dimly lit or while the lights were off, you could kind of make out what was in the room. You kind of see a little bit of what was going on, but not until you turn on the light can you really enjoy the splendor and the beauty of what was there. So he says, it brings into clearer view much of what is in it 
but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. So that's like the Old Testament. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's adorned. It's pointing to Christ. We know that. We know that it's pointing to Christ. But for the people of Israel that were waiting upon the Messiah, they couldn't see the clear picture. They couldn't see what we have seen. As New Testament believers, we have the light. We are able to see the Old Testament, the New Testament in its fullness. It has been revealed to us. The beauty and the splendor of Christ has been revealed to us. And this was because of a promise. A promise that the light would enter into the world. This was a promise of God. And this is a point that I want to make. That unlike the promises of man, the promises of God can be fully trusted. Say that one more time. Unlike the promises of men, the promises of God can be fully trusted. I'm going to use an example. I'm going to share a little story, personal story in regards to this. Um, when I was young, uh, a little boy, I used to go to the grocery store uh, with my mom, my grandma. And while they would shop, I would find my way over, separated from them, over to the magazine aisle. As a kid, um, back in those days, um, I loved to look at magazines that are about video games. I loved to look at magazines that were about wrestling. I just loved to just, while they were doing the boring stuff, the shopping, I was focused on the magazines. I was, I was doing something to entertain myself. And so this was a normal trip to the grocery store. I went to the grocery store with my mom. She was off doing her shopping. I was at the magazines. And then my dad walked in. Um, I have, for those of you all who don't know, um, I have never really had a relationship with my dad. My dad, I didn't grow up with my father. Um, I didn't have a relationship with him. And so when my dad walked in the store that day, um, I was excited because I was still at a point in time in my life, I was still young enough where I hadn't built up resentment for my father not being there. I was still excited to see him. I was still longing to be in his presence, longing to have a relationship with him. I had not built up any anger like I did when I got older or any of the resentment. So when my dad walked in, I was excited to see him. My eyes lit up, I was happy. And my dad came over and he talked to me. And one of the things that he did we, as we were just chatting and talking and catching up is he said, son, you know about those new days that came out? And I was like, yeah, yeah. You know, I kept up with the shoes and all that stuff even back then as a young kid. And my dad said, you know what? I'm going to get you a pair of those. I'm going to get you a pair of those J's. So next time I see you, I'm going to have them for you. And when my dad told me that, I lit up. I was excited. I was hopeful. I had hope that my dad was going to come through with this promise that he made to me. He made a promise that he was going to get these shoes for me, and I was excited, and I was looking forward to it. I was looking forward to the next time that I got a chance to see him because he was going to have those days for me. And my dad knew where I lived. Although him and my mom weren't together, he knew where I lived. And so I figured, you know, he would come over to the house and bring the shoes to me. 
And so I was ecstatic. I was happy. I was excited. I had hope. It was like light. It was like the light bulb was on. It was like, like this light that just turned on a hopeful light that I had in his promise. He made a promise to me, and I was hopeful, and it was like light. But over time, my dad never showed up. I waited, and I waited, and I waited. And that light, that hope, got dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer until it was darkness. Until I had lost hope in the promise that my dad made to me. That was a crushing blow in my life at that point in time. Because my father, my, my earthly father, had made a promise to me that I had put my hope in, I had put my trust in, and then he didn't come through with it. Crushed me as a boy. I really believe, as I can recall, it really was the time that really pushed me towards anger towards my dad. It pushed me towards resentment. Because up until that point, even though he wasn't there, I still longed to be with him. I still had hope for a relationship with him. And then when he made that promise to me, my hope grew even more. And then over time, as that promise was not fulfilled, and I realized that it wasn't going to be fulfilled, my hope that was light, like light, dimmed over time until it was darkness. So I had no hope anymore. And I share that story because that's the promise of man. And God's promises are not like the promises of man. If we put our hope and our trust in the promises of God, he will not fail. He will come through in his promises. It's a beautiful thing about a promise-keeping God. The God we serve that is a promise-keeping God. His promises can be fully trusted. And so the people of God, I don't know how they felt waiting all those years. There was about approximately 700 years or so before this baby, this child was born. So the people of God, some of the people of God lived and died hoping on this promise, looking forward to this promise of God. But it soon came to fruition. God comes through with his promises. If God makes a promise, you can be sure that it will be fulfilled. It was fulfilled in Christ, this child that was born, this son that was given. The text says that the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor. The English doesn't do it good. Wonderful is not quite the proper representation of what that truly means. The scriptures here, the Old Testament, are written in Hebrew. And so the Hebrew word for wonderful, because if you think of wonderful, you could think, okay, you have a good counselor, you have a great counselor, and then you have a wonderful counselor. And it's kind of like that, kind of in that kind of tier. Good, great, wonderful. 
but it's way more significant than that. The Hebrew for wonderful means miraculous, full of wonder. So our God, Christ, the Messiah, he is a wonderful counselor. He is a miraculous counselor. When you go to him for wisdom, when you seek wisdom from the wonderful counselor, he will come through in ways that are awe inspiring. He will come through in ways that you don't imagine, that you don't expect. It will seem like a miraculous encounter. Your level of expectation is here, but God's filling, fulfilling of those expectations is here. God is a wonderful counselor. He's a miraculous counselor, miraculous in his response. When you don't know what to do, I know a lot of times we like to go to other people, and part of the, the way that God has established his church is to receive counsel from the people of God. But ultimately, the full, wonderful, miraculous counselor, the wonderful counselor is Christ. He is the one that we should seek after for wisdom and be expecting something even beyond what we can imagine. He is a wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God. Mighty, once again, in the English, it doesn't do it justice to what this word means in the Hebrew. A mighty God is a warrior, a conqueror, a victor. Our God is mighty. He is a warrior. He fights battles on our behalf. And guess what? Our God, this Christ, is undefeated. He's never lost a battle. The greatest battle of all battles is the battle against sin and death. Christ, the mighty God, the mighty warrior, is victorious over sin, death, and the grave. We have a mighty God. We have an eternal Father, an everlasting Father. See, in a lot of ways, you know, you would think, well, why are they referring to Jesus, who is the Son, as a Father? Why are they referring to him as the eternal father, don't we have the Trinity, the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Isn't Jesus the Son? So why are they referring to him as a father? Well, in a lot of ways, if you think of Adam, he was our first father, the father of humankind, the first Adam, the father of all living. All humankind started with Adam the first Adam. But Christ is the second Adam. He's the spiritual father. He is the father that gives us life, gives us life not in the natural, but in the spiritual. Remember, we once walked in darkness. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. But Christ, the eternal father, the everlasting father, the second Adam, gives us new life, a spiritual life. He is a father in that way. And he is the prince of peace. He's the captain, the general, the commander of peace. Christ is the one 
who brings peace, not just on earth, but to our souls, the longing, the turmoil in our soul, in our deepest inner being, in our deepest longing. He is the prince of peace. He is the commander. He is the general. He is the one who brings ultimate peace to our weary and tired souls. He is the prince of peace. His dominion will be vast and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Will accomplish this. If God is zealous, if God has fervor and intense desire to accomplish something, he will accomplish it. He is the one who has never failed. So if God has zeal to accomplish this, you can bet he will accomplish it. There's nothing you have to worry about. We see this. As I said, we have the the New Testament scriptures. We see this referenced in Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. It says this. When he heard, this is Jesus, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Y'all remember that from earlier, Zebulun and Naphtali? That was an area that was conquered by the Assyrians. Okay? In, the, in, the day, in the days of Isaiah, that was conquered by the Assyrians. There was darkness in Zebulun and Naphtali. But now, here, this is exactly where Jesus set up his ministry. The redemption, you can already see it in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali. Along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Not just for the people of Israel. Not just for the Israelites, but for the Gentiles, you and I, those who are not of ethnic origin from Israel. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This Jesus. From then on, Jesus began to preach. Listen to his message to the darkness. Repent. Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. The message to the darkness, to those who are walking in darkness that we once were, to repent. To repent, to confess your sins against an almighty, an all-powerful, a wonderful counselor, a prince of peace. Confess your sins against this God. Repent of your sins. Turn away from your sins. 
1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 9 says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we are lying and we are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. The light is not in us if we say we have no sin. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, God is faithful. The message to the darkness, the message to the onlooking world, the message to those who don't believe, this message that don't believe that a child was born, the message to the darkness to repent, to repent, to believe the gospel because the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's at hand. We all had to receive this message. If we are in faith today, if we know Christ today, we receive the message to repent. If we are in Christ today, we responded to that message of repentance with confession. And with our confession, he was faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So we as the people of God, as the heralds of truth, we continue to go out with this message to the darkness to repent, to turn away from their sins and their trespasses. That's our message from our Lord, from our God, to the unbelieving world. We can't shy away from that message, saints. We can't fall back. We can't fail to share the good news of the gospel because someone, somehow, it was shared with us. We can't fail to share that. Because, and lastly, because of that, we have another promise that we, as the people of God, we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to the promise of the second coming, the second advent. See, this text is describing the first advent when Jesus came the first time, the first arrival. But we as the people of God, we have the promise that is coming to us that there will be a second arrival. There will be a second advent. And that day, for those of us who are in Christ, will be a glorious day. There will be no more sin. There will be no more death. We will be reigning and ruling with Christ. That's a beautiful day that we're looking forward to. But on the flip side of that, 
the second advent for those who are in the darkness, for those who don't believe, is a day of judgment. It's a day of destruction. So what I want us to do as we close out our time is I want you to think about someone you know that's still walking in darkness, that still has not come to the light, that still has not believed this story, this advent, that Jesus has come into the world, the light of the world. I want you to think about somebody, whether it be in your family, whether it be a friend, whether it be someone you know or an acquaintance. Think of someone that you know is in darkness. And I want to take this last few moments to pray for them, to pray for whoever that is, whoever is walking in darkness, that the second advent that's going to be glorious and we're looking forward to with hopeful anticipation, for them it will be a day of judgment. It will be a day of reckoning. It will be a day of paying for their sins on their own without the blood of Christ. We all know someone who doesn't know Jesus, someone who is still walking in darkness. We all know someone. So I want, just like we do in our time of repentance, I want to take a minute right there where you are to bow your head and to lift unto our Father who is in heaven that person or those people that you know that are still walking in darkness and ask for God to move on their behalf Ask God how you can be a vessel with this message of repentance in their life. So let's pray. Father, as we come before your throne of grace, as we have been thinking on our heart and minds of those who are still walking in darkness, that still have not seen the marvelous light, that still have not seen the light of the gospel that expels, that dispels the darkness, Lord, I pray that you would hear our prayers. Lord, prayers just went up all over this room for people who do not know you. Loved ones, friends, acquaintances. Lord, people that you have put in our vicinity that don't know you, that are still walking in the darkness. Lord, I pray that you will honor those prayers. Pray that you would show us how to be vessels with the message of the good news of the gospel. That yes, 
they are in darkness and they need to repent. But there is forgiveness when we confess our sins unto you. Lord, I pray that we would continue as a people to hope in your promises. Lord, to know, Lord, that your promises, no matter how far off they seem, Lord, your promises you will fulfill. You are not like humans. You are not like man. Men fail to fulfill their promises all the time, but Lord, you are perfect in all of your ways and you fulfill every single promise that you make. You are good. Lord, so I pray. I pray, Lord, that we would be looking with anticipation and joyful hope to the second advent, to the second arrival, to the second coming of the one who is the light of the world. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we can look with anticipation. And until that day, we can continue to hope and we continue to live with an eternal focus, not focus on this world, not focus on the things that are temporary and the things that are passing away, but Lord, focus on the things that are eternal, that are everlasting. I pray that we would continue to hold that hope until you return. Keep your people hoping in you. Thank you, Lord. We praise your name. Above all names shall be, every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for that good word, Dion. A couple things before we dismiss. Um, Dion, this this sermon kicked off Advent. Our kind of running theme, as we kind of lay it out today, is going to be the light of the world. Playing on this light and darkness, how Christ, this, this coming Advent, this arrival of Christ 2,000 years ago, as the light of the world, and that he's coming back. And we as his vessels, his light is in us, we are to be a light in our bleak world as, as well. So I, I challenge y'all to continue to pray for those individuals that came to mind. Christ, ask the Holy Spirit to show you opportunities to be light to them um, in this holiday season. I know um, the person that came to mind for me was someone in my family, and that might be for you as well. Um, and so in the holiday seasons, oftentimes we're talking with our family, and some of our family members don't know the Lord. So I continue to challenge y'all as we go through this Advent season to fight through the distraction of the holidays, the sales, the Black Fridays, et cetera, et cetera, and let's be anticipating this light of the world and in that be a light to an unbelieving world. Um, one more thing. We had visitors today. I was really excited on, on a Thanksgiving weekend. Visitors, if you happen not to fill out a card, we'd love to get your information. We'd love to follow up with you. We'd love to get to know you and, and how to connect you or serve you. Um, and so if you happen not to fill out a card on the way out, there's cards on the table. We'd love for you to fill them out. Um, and with that said, please rise for the benediction. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and 
peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.